Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to It's Rainmaking Time. This is Kim Greenhouse, and it's a great pleasure to have you here today to introduce one of my favorite master composers, conductors, and arrangers, Joseph Curiali. Now, before we, be, we bring him in, I want to talk to you a little bit about how I found out about him, the context for calling him into the show, and it starts like this. I'm on Sunset Boulevard in Los Angeles. I grew up in Los Angeles, California, and I hear a masterpiece over KPFK uh, off the CD Awakening, and it's called, it's off the first movement, Gates of Gold, and it's called Arrival. It is phenomenal. It was so mind-blowing that I had to pull off the road and listen to it and actually call the station and find out who did it. I do this from time to time with Omar Farouk Tekbalek when I heard his song, his piece, Whirling. There are a few masters that make me get off the road, and Joseph is one of them. I want to tell you a little bit about his background because it is unusual. When I asked him to send me his CV, it was so large that when I went through the number of artists that he's worked with, master artists, I, I had my mind blown. Let me give you a few of them. Sammy Davis Jr., Michael Jackson, Janet Jackson, Little Richard, Santana, Tower of Power, Nancy Wilson, Patty Austin, Quincy Jones, Shaka Khan, Luther Vandross, Gino Vanelli, Ricky Martin, Michael Bolton, Kenny Rogers, James Ingram, Brian McKnight, Frank Sinatra, Patti LaBelle, Stevie Wonder, it goes on and on, Loretta Lynn, Barry White, Marion Allen Bergman, Michelle Legrand, Paul Williams, the Glenn Miller Orchestra, the Boston Pops, the Tonight Show Orchestra. I mean, it just pages upon pages upon pages of television shows, um, of performances. He performed with the Royal Philharmonic Orchestra, the London Symphony Orchestra. He actually produced this CD at Abbey Road Studios. He's a phenomenon. Now, why many of you have not heard about him has to do with the structure of the entertainment, music entertainment industry, radio stations, and how they're structured, and what you, the very, very small bandwidth that you get a chance to hear. Welcome, Master Joseph Corelli, to its rainmaking time. Good morning. Thank you, thank you I should Kim. say good Thanks. afternoon. Yeah, <laughs> they, thank you for the they, invitation. They, they tend to all blend into each other. That's for sure. I think, I think we first want to talk a little bit about the distinction between a composer and a conductor and a ranger, because this frame of reference is what the public needs to rec fully receive you. Could you please explain it? What sure, do they and there's do? one other one, an orchestrator. Um, uh, well, composer, I mean, this is very put very simply, kind of creates something out of nothing, more or less. Um, in the case of Hollywood, it might be creating something that's derivative of other things. Um, but still original enough so you don't get sued. But uh, in its finest form, you know, of course, it's uh, writing original music. And uh, an arranger, uh, th this, the difference between an arranger and an orchestrator, it didn't get clarified really till I was in Hollywood, but because uh, I always lumped both of those in under the term arranger. But a ranger would be, for example, 
somebody taking, like if this was a Hollywood situation, saying, okay, we want to do um, Tommy James' Crystal Blue Persuasion, but we want to do it in a big band style. So the arranger will start blocking it out and kind of creating a roadmap about, and, and they say, okay, we, it's the original's three and a half minutes, we only want it two minutes. So the arranger will have to say, okay, what are the best parts? How, how are we gonna condense this into uh, two minutes? So it basically creates a structure. Now an orchestrator now will take the melody and the harmonies and then allocate them to the different uh, sections of whatever the ensemble it is. It, it could be a big band, it could be an orchestra, it could be a rhythm section with a few horns. Whatever it is, uh, the orchestrator will um, blend those instruments and choose when they will play and uh, which ones will play alone and which ones will play counterpoint to the melody, etc. Et and a conductor, of course, is um, um, somebody that's trying to keep everything on track because even even with the the best musicians in my experience sometimes uh, if somebody's not paying attention for the moment they might get a little bit lost or if the orchestra or the band is playing a little bit too loud uh, the way the music has been stated where it's supposed to be a little more quieter and everybody's kind of blasting through the dynamics you know the the conductor will kind of use uh, body language to be able to say, you know, a little quieter here, and uh, or you know, really big. Give me more. You're not giving me enough at the end. You know, that but not using words, but using body language. Sometimes I think, um, well, I can speak for myself, but it's like being a conductor has an element of ballet in it as well. You know. Um, just body, body movement and looks like tai chi uh, to me. <laughs> yeah, that's true. I yeah. mean, maybe that's why I'm very attracted to watching people do tai chi because it's uh, it's it's very similar. You know, you're just uh, tr you're translating everything into your hands, into your hand motions and your body motion, or your facial expressions, etc. It's uh, it can have its magical moments. That's for sure. And I really think uh, the the music plays differently. Because same piece of music will play differently with uh, different conductors. You know, some conductors are very respectful of the composer's intentions, and some uh, conductors, which I won't mention, are they like to just blast through. They have really big egos, and you say, "Well, this is the way I think it should be." You know, that that kind of thing. So, yeah, I hope that. I have a logistics question though. They're in there. They're reading the music and they're playing. Let's say they're in the they're in the orchestra. You're conducting. How do they know how much to watch your hand movements? They're looking at the music, right? And they're playing and doing whatever they're doing. How do they check in on you? They have to take their eyes off the music, right? Right. Well, as as they're kind of scanning, I think um, musicians, especially really experienced musicians, they they're kind of looking ahead already. So if they know they're coming into a different section or they see there's there's this little a sign, it's called a fermata, or you can say it, it's a hold, where, where you get to that point and the conductor will just hold them there and they just sustain that until you move on. So they'll, they might scan through it, of course, before they start recording it, but even while they're playing it, um, they're kind of looking ahead. So if they know something's coming up, when they start to get close to that, they might start looking you know, looking up at the conductor. Uh, in the case of an orchestra, this is my interpretation of it. 
is that to a large degree that the orchestra may not be following me as the conductor, they're actually following the concert master who is following me. You know, um, you mean there's another would, layer between you and the orchestra? Well, the concert master is the, the principal violinist, you know, and uh, and so, you know, they they seem to. This is just my interpretation. They seem to be going going along with the way uh, the concert master is moving, you know, phrasing and move, a little bit of body language. But usually, that concert master is watching the conductor. And uh, that's my experience. I mean, I, I've looked, and of course, I see when, I, when I'm conducting, I see people looking up at me as well. Um, so, but I think it's a combination of all those things, and it's very fragile, and um, and it's it's not static. You know, it, it's kind of kind of always moving, um, and you hope uh, you know you make it to the end <laughs> in one piece. More, you definitely made it to the end. I, I heard Arrival and that whole CD. You definitely made it to the end, oh. which brings up which brings up the subject of, and I really want to get to this, translating where the music comes from. It's not the same meaning. It's not the same as poetry where you're getting the words, you know, the, when you have just the orchestra side, you have the words or... You know, you're getting downloads um, of images or, or something like that. This is extensive, complex, a lot of layers and levels. It's all music that comes into you. And the thing is, I don't understand how you capture it. How did you capture Arrival? The capturing, it's one thing to hear it, but then to bring it in. It's not like you're hearing words. You're hearing music. How do you remember it? It's extensive. Well, when that information really starts to flow, it's it's quite a challenge. I mean, because to how how quickly can I basically take dictation for all this information that's coming through? And I just yeah. have to try my best, you know, and and catch everything while I can. You 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 know, if you really divert your attention from it, I think you can lose a lot of the important. Uh, moments of it, especially for me, I'm I'm also hearing the melody, but I'm also hearing the counter melodies, which I'm really big about counter melodies I, and making really beautiful color counter melodies that support um, the main melodies. Uh, this wonderful dialogue between them that makes e each of them better, I think, and stronger. Uh, well, and with Arrival, I mean, I still remember it very well. It's just, um, I didn't necessarily remember sitting down saying, today I'm going to write this, you know, and I, I, I already had the intention for, for a long time. It had been for a year or more that I really wanted to write something like that, that, uh, you know, and you know, had a dream of, oh, to go to London and record it one of the famous orchestras and all that. And then one day I sat down and I just started playing and I go, oh, this is this is it. I mean, it's 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 coming through and I just keep going, keep going. Fortunately, what I did, you know, thanks to technology, is um, basically it's like a digital recorder in a way. I just, uh, you know, pressed record. And so everything that I was playing would be recorded. And um, so uh, and then fortunately got most of that and then 
started going back and then orchestrating it, adding the counter melodies and choosing, quickly choosing some of the key instruments that we'd be playing those counter melodies and which ones would be playing the main melody and, and the violin solo, etc. Um, and then this went on, it must have gone on for about eight hours. <laughs> and then, boom, it was like, Either I hit a brick wall or somebody just turned the faucet off and it was there wasn't anything coming through. Just boom. And I was going, oh, great. You know, what, what am I going to do now? Where, where do I go? And I honestly didn't have an idea. Where, where do I go from here? Because I don't think I, intel I didn't intellectualize it to begin, to begin with. This is something I didn't like sit and plan out. It seemed to have come of itself and I just was there to... To, to write it down. So I was concerned about where, to, where I'm going to go from there. And I remember at that time either hearing a lecture or reading a book by Deepak Chopra that said, you know, when you come to these kind of uh, crossroads um, or impasses, uh, you need to play. Find, you know, do what, what you find is really fun. And that, that kind of like, um, releases the tension that hopefully will will let the rest of the information come through. So I uh, drove down to Union Station, uh, train station in Los Angeles because I like trains, and I just uh, photographed trains coming in and out, and uh, I enjoyed myself. <laughs> yeah, very much. And on the when I was driving back on the 101, uh, it's like boom. You know, about midway through the the trip back, I go. Oh, here it comes. And then I was going, I don't want to, I don't want to get a tick speeding ticket, but I really need to get back as quickly as possible. And That's like so a two that hour can, drive, isn't it? It's a two hour drive, right? Uh, something, yeah, something like that. It's close um, to Santa, uh, Santa Barbara. Um, San Yanez Mountains. It's on the way too, anyway. Oh, at this time I was living uh, more near um, Thousand Oaks uh, kind of thing. So um, uh, it wasn't it wasn't quite as far. Oh, Santa Inez would have been a three about three hours. Mm -hmm. So um, and I went back and then another eight hour shift, and it just went. You know, went meaning disappeared. Um, it just I should say it, it came that went. It, it just started. Okay. It kept started coming, coming more and more and more and more and uh, and basically so in two installments. The, it was pretty much sketched pretty clearly from beginning to end. But then, of course, later on, then I would I would take a pencil and and, and score paper, and I would, you know, uh, actually do the, the the entire piece for the full orchestra, that kind of thing. But uh, see yeah. again, another translation. Is that a translation? It is, um, isn't it? Well, in a way, your your or an interpretation, maybe. Yes, uh, there you go. Um, of of what what had come through, but because I had a a very clear picture of what I had done, uh, because I recorded it as I was writing it, uh, I could I could go back and check the little fine details, and then and then so you as an or then I had to orchestrate it, so you're kind of fleshing it out. So I'm taking those main ideas, which are simple. Um, and then uh, creating 
creating it for a full like for a full orchestra that that so um so that that's uh, how arrival came uh actually with gates of gold the second movement came first and uh, wow. uh, that's a river wow. of tears uh i was in singapore and um a family a young couple that i was staying with i, I worked with uh, the um the male of the family in 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 a music <laughs> production company and i remember the day before i was flying back to los angeles the um i heard crying and uh coming out of the other bedroom and uh it, w one thing led to another and i found out that my friend's wife had had a miscarriage and she was carrying twins and i i never heard that that there was really sorrowful crying and the next day she came to the airport and she never came to the airport to see me off and i cried all the way back from Singapore to Los Angeles and when I got back to Los Angeles I sat in a hot bath and all of a sudden the melody started flowing of uh of river of tears and um <laughs> in a hot bath yeah wow. and I I might have mentioned this before that it, it was getting difficult to bathe because it seems like when I was in <laughs> a hot bath um maybe because it I became felt really a hot relaxed, mess, right <laughs> all of this information started coming so it says as soon as i laid down i'm going here's the melody I'm going, uh, i have to get up i have to get up i have to get a piece of paper or i got to go to the keyboard quickly and write this down and um that's and actually and the last movement that came of course was call of the mountain and i wrote that one in singapore wow yeah yeah so it comes and then you really are captive until yeah, it's written I mean, down it's it's a choice though you know yes. because yes. Uh, i'm proactive and when i when i hear what's coming through i'm just going oh this is i kind of just like an intuitive feeling like wow this is something really great this is something really special i better i need to show up here and and get to work and um it happens at different times and it happens at times when are not really convenient you know with like wind river when i wrote wind river i had uh was commissioned 2 years before the the world premiere of Wind River by the University of Wyoming and the state of Wyoming and so I made lots of trips to Wyoming and drove up Wind River Valley because at least I loved the 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 two words Wind River I thought they were very um visual and poetic and so that's all I had for a long time and nothing was coming through uh and then when i got into the second year of nothing coming through i was you know getting a little bit concerned and then one morning <laughs> around 5:30 in the morning when i was getting ready from santa inez to to go all the way to los angeles uh there it was and i went oh oh it's kind of good news bad news and going, this is not the greatest time because i i have something to do and i just had to put everything aside and go sit down and and really try hard to kind of take the this dictation down as as quickly as possible and um it's it's a much it's a it's a large piece like gates of gold as well oh, and for that, sure a, a big chunk of it would come through and then i would um i would stop actually there were there were times i have a little wind river diary that i that i had written about that experience and i remember just after many of those kind of channeling sessions if i can put it like that um i felt so exhausted like physically and mentally not yeah not only mentally but physically and i just like 
curl up in a ball in the fetal position on the bed and, and I'd cry, you know, just like I go, wow. I remember writing to a producer friend of mine in London and just said, man, I don't know how much longer I can do this stuff. I go, because it's, 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 I feel like it's killing me in a way, you know. And uh, so, yeah, that's, that. to me, though, those are the best things. This is not how it always works in Hollywood, you know, because that, that's more uh, what I call blue collar work. Uh, and that's not to be demeaning about it because it's, uh, I really enjoyed it, but it's more like you have a set of skills and you have a, a large body of knowledge of music and then a producer or director comes up and says, I want, I need this and a little bit of that. And you just pull it out from that. And you go, no problem. I, I know where you, where you want to go with this. And you kind of cobble it together and, you know, go with it with that. It's not... For me, it wasn't the, the same kind of exhausting experience writing the concert music. It's that was that was in a different league, you know. Oh, totally. Talk a little bit about the special piece that you did for Michael Jackson and how that came about. That was interesting. Um, well, I had been on staff with Columbia Pictures as a songwriter for six years, and my um, contract was coming to an end, and. I was wondering, again, one of those crosses, what, what am I going to do now, blah, blah, blah. And then in a very short time, um, I was recommended by three different contractors in Los Angeles for this musical director from New York who was coming out and doing this big Sammy Davis special. It was a tribute to Sammy Davis because uh, the people in the industry knew that he was dying and that he only had a few months to live. And so it was a big deal. Quincy Jones was involved, and he was, I think, one of the people that pulled all the really heavyweight talent together for it. And uh, so I was asked to orchestrate it. I wasn't the only orchestrator. It was just a, a, a huge amount of work to do uh, in about two weeks. So there was a kind of a handful of orchestrators that worked on it. So I finished my work after the two weeks, and I felt relieved because it was a lot of pressure. And But during that two weeks, there was always rumors flying around that Maybe Michael Jackson was going to do something. Now, do you have to, do, I have to state that this is when Michael Jackson was at the absolute pinnacle of his career. This is when he was the king of pop, pop. and there, yeah. there weren't all the allegations of, uh, you know. Misconduct. Yeah, exactly. Thank you. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and um, so he was pretty elusive and hard to pin down, even for, you know, the, the people like Quincy Jones and stuff. So I finished my work and I got, okay, great. You know, that's it. Tomorrow's the dress rehearsal and the tapings in the evening and that's it. So I, I went back to my apartment and uh, was watching The Tonight Show late at night around 11.30. And then around midnight, the phone rings and it's the musical director and he says, Michael's going to do the show. Do you want to do his or his orchestration and I was like <laughs> you know like yes <laughs> you know of, of course I wanted to do it but I was really tired and the, and the fact they said well we're going to send a he just wrote it and we have a cassette of him sitting at the piano playing in it and we're going to have a messenger send it over to you should be over there by about 1 a.m. Uh, we need it done we'll have it picked up around seven o'clock in the morning so oh my god <laughs> i was pretty tired already so and, and and of course i this was something super special and i didn't want to make any mistakes and then i had to come up with a a, a concept all this so short i, I started too short no notice. yeah well this is this is kind of normal 
to some degree in Hollywood work where music is always kind of left to last minute. But this is a unique situation. And of course, somebody that was just absolutely huge that, mm-hmm. you know, I felt so grateful for the opportunity. So, you know, by about five o'clock in the morning, I remember just slumped over the <laughs> keyboard and just like uh, started crying because I couldn't keep my eyes open anymore. And I was just going, but I, I can't make any mistakes, you know. And at that time, I didn't have the the kind of software where if I input it all, I can play it back and I can hear if there were any mistakes. This is just pencil to paper, and just oh looking at God. it and hoping that there is no there are no problems. And so they picked it up, and at noon I went over to the Shrine Auditorium in Los Angeles, and uh, he showed up and he did the rehearsal. He ran through it a few times. Fortunately, there were no mistakes. Everybody really loved it. I went over and said hi to him. Uh, he signed my my score, and um, and that was it. And so, but it, but it was an interesting story. With it. it's called "You Were There," and he wrote it for Sammy Javis, basically saying you you were there before we came. Those are the first. That's the first line. Sure. You took the hurt. You took the pain. So he's he's saying thanks to you. Guys like me get to be the king of pop, you know, and get all the respect, but you have to take all the abuse, you know. So it was, in that sense, it was a very, very touching. And I remember, and you can see it on the video, it's actually on YouTube, and they have, they have a, a, you know, a high-definition version of it up there, and, uh, and you see the, the camera cuts to, to Sammy, you know, kind of sitting there, kind of like with tears in his eyes, and I was going, this, this is a really special moment for me because I grew up in jazz and pop and the whole thing, you know, the whole Sinatra, Rat Pack thing, all, yeah. all of that. So to me, this was so iconic that I was doing something honoring, not only for Michael Jackson, but doing something that was honoring uh, Sammy Davis Jr. And, the uh, Candyman. Remember the Candyman? Yeah, of course I do. And, uh, and, and the strangest thing is that in 2011, I was asked to be the um, the dean of a music school in South India. So I went over there to check it out, and I met one of the students who hap- whose father happens to be one of the most famous songwriters in Bollywood. And oh, she's, wow. she's also very talented. And she, when she found out that I had worked with Michael Jackson, she says, come over to this computer. I want to play something for you. I want to play something for you. It's my favorite thing of Michael Jackson ever did. And she, and she you know, goes on to YouTube, and what does she play? You were there. So I'm going, oh, wow. Well, what are the chances, man? You know what I mean? This was, That's this synchronicity, was big synchronicity. How did you yeah, like was, being in India? I'm sorry? How did you like being in India? Well, I, I had already been a veteran by that point. I, uh, you know, <laughs> sure. I, I was there from 2000, starting in 2006. This was 2011, uh, you know, raising orphan children and paying off the debts of the uh, widows of the farm, farmer suicide tragedy and all that. So I was, you know, India was like old hat to me. Second I felt home. like, a, yeah, I felt like a... Um, a local in a lot of ways. I mean, it's it's bitter, like a lot of things. It's really bittersweet. You know, it's um there's some really wonderful moments, and there are a lot of not wonderful moments. But this school was kind of uh, kind of interesting, and uh, it was kind of an interesting concept. I, I didn't continue on, but uh, but I met some really talented young musicians. I can tell you, India has a lot of them. <laughs> that's for sure. Oh yeah, beautiful music. 
India has beautiful music. I love the Bollywood dancing, actually. That music, too, is a lot of fun. Very oh, because nice. I had, I basically <laughs> adopted four, four girls that I took care of over the years, and, you know, and they were always dancing to all that stuff, you know. They, they'd, they knew every song from every Bollywood movie, and, um, they, and so it was really <laughs> special for me. Sometimes I, I'd be sleeping, and all of a sudden it's midnight, and the four of them, they're all, dan they're all dancing, watching something on TV and dancing. I'm going, boy, this is, again, one of those special moments ago. This is like, you know, a visual poetry, you know what I mean? It was just, it was wonderful. So culturally, it was uh, an amazing Rich. experience. Rich, yeah. did you dance with them? Well, did they they, they, they kind of roped me in once they? in a while. <laughs> yeah, once in a while. Um, Do you know how, Joseph? You were, well, I, I was just watching kind of, no, I mean, I, yeah, I, I was a child actor, so I mean, I, I was used to dancing a, a bit and, um, and certainly did a little bit of my share when I was with Barry White. As his, as his conductor, and um, so you can't help not move listening to that music. So, oh my so. God, you mean Barry White? Like I'm gonna love you, love you, honey. <laughs> That's the one. Yeah. Right. Yes, I love Barry wow. White. He's, he's sexy, always treated sexy me stuff. so. Yeah, he's treated me so kindly, and he's a he was a wonderful, really wonderful man to me. I mean, I've heard in in the early days he could be pretty pretty rough. All I can say is my experience with him, nothing but. Uh, a wonderful, loving kindness that you know coming from him to me, and to to be able to conduct that music every night on the road on the on tour was, oh man, it was great. <laughs> Did you ever interface with the, I guess what some people would refer to as the Hollywood elite, in a sense, like in terms of the business side? Oh sure, uh, when I signed with Columbia Pictures, that was kind of like going. <laughs> Semi from zero to 100, but I had already been doing The Tonight Show before that, and that was a big zero to 100 uh, in itself. When I, when I signed with Columbia Pictures, I was the first songwriter, staff songwriter, signed in Columbia Pictures history. And it was amazing to me because I really, at that time, I was only about 27, and I really didn't have much of a track record at all, but I had somebody who really believed in me who became the head of the company. Uh, the the division, I should say, of of the publishing company. But um, when I was getting ready to sign the contract, he brought me up to meet the president of Columbia Pictures. I went up wow. to his office, and and he he was, you know, obviously a busy guy, but you know, it wasn't uh, you know super welcoming. But he was just like he said, "You have one year." <laughs> that was kind of my introduction, just like, wow, oh, okay. What he basically meant: you have one year to make some money, or we're not going to we're not going to pick up your option. Fortunately, within about six months, uh, I had a song that started the break dance, the break in soundtrack about break dancing, and it sold four million copies. So, oh my God, which one was I, that? It was called Breakin in the United States. That was the first break, big break dance movie. I mean, the album that I was on went to number one. So I, I do have a feeling, I, I wasn't the single, but but I do know what it's like to be on a number one album. It, That's it really bumped, awesome. Uh, it pushed Prince's Purple Rain off at the time. But, really? Uh, yeah, and it was worldwide. <laughs> I'm I mean, sure he didn't appreciate that. Everybody, oh, Prince. You know, I've worked with people in other countries over the years who wanted to hire me to do an arrangement or orchestration. And then when they find out you know that I worked on that. They go, oh, you know, they they all loved that movie. So um, 
I mean, it was kind of a B movie, but it but it it was a huge success, you know. Did so. you ever work with Ravi Shankar? Did no, I, I saw him play once in Pasadena. It was like this, a superstar concert. It was Ravi Shankar, uh, Zakir Hussain, which in a lot of ways I feel more people were probably there to see him than Ravi Shankar. Yeah. Ravi yeah. Shankar's daughter was playing with him at that time. Um, there were there were a few other. They were kind of mega superstars of India, and it was like starts at ten in the morning and finishes at ten at night. It was wow, you know that kind of thing. Well, yeah, I mean, I remember hearing the Indian guru and he say that uh, about Ravi Shankar said that his music is um, uh, divine. That's that's yeah. basically how he put it. And uh, yeah, how about I, Ali Akbar Khan? Ali Akbar Khan. Oh, yeah, no, he's, I, I, oh my I, I God, think, gifted. I think Zakir Hussein's father might have played with him. I don't know, or, or Zakir That guy was him, gifted. Woo. No, there, that's a whole different school yeah. of music. And, you know, knowing a bit about it, because I've, I have had the good fortune to work with some amazing Indian, traditional Indian musicians, and know what they're studying, um, you know, the, the life of studying music in India is, and it makes, generally speaking, makes what I've experienced in American mu music studying a complete joke, especially the students. I mean, they they revere their, their teachers, and they literally get down on the ground, usually before a concert, and touch their, their forehead to their feet. It's called Padnamaskar, showing, you know, their... Um, you know their the respect for their for their teacher. Um, oh man, the, I, of course I am just wrapping up teaching at a university in the United States, and it was completely the opposite: complete disrespect, um, arrogance, and nothing to be arrogant about. You know, so it's, it's entitlement, different. entitlement, oh, huge and huge entitlement. You know, they they can yeah. put a few beats together, they think they're Mozart. You know what I mean? This kind of thing. So it's just like. <laughs> I mean, I'm I'm cool with all that. Obviously, I worked in the in in the pop music industry. You know, I I know all about it. I worked in, you know, rap and hip hop when it first started. So they can't, you know, say, well, you know, you don't know about today's music. I'm going, yeah, I was there when it started. Okay, and and of course, breaking was one. <laughs> the breakdance movie was a uh, was really a part of that. You know, so um, kind of like in a way, like a granddaddy of of some of that music that's happening now. So. Uh, yeah, so it's yeah, and and the albums, the newer albums that I did, like uh, I did a couple of electronic albums in the last few years, and uh, I used traditional um, musicians from India recorded in Delhi, and I mean they're just awesome. I mean the the performances are they're awesome, <laughs> you know. Yeah, it's a it's a real treat to listen to a live Indian music performance. Uh, yeah, phenomenal. You talked a little bit about um, people that have believed in you. You've had a lot of people in the industry who heard you, met you, saw you, and believed in you. And I feel that that's major in coming into one's fulfillment in whatever it is that is their calling and the thing that they want most. Can you talk a little bit about some of the other people who you knew believed in you and what that means? How did it show up that they believed in you? Well, the list is is long, and um, you know it could be starting from my my say like my grandparents or something when I didn't have any money and nowhere to go and you know didn't have an instrument. You know they would 
come down to New York with me. You know, here I am going down to New York City with an old Italian grandma. And, and everybody has an Aunt Mary, you know what I mean? And she, she came along and, you know, to buy me a trumpet. And fortunately, the most famous guy who sold trumpets and made mouthpieces in New York for, um, who was Sicilian. <laughs> so they're, they're all yakking in Italian, you know, and I'm trying trumpets and stuff. So it was kind of interesting. So, I mean, early on, you have a family, hopefully, that believe in you and, uh, you know, encourage what you're doing. I had wonderful teachers in high school who were fine musicians as well and uh, who were very, very encouraging. Um, then I went to undergraduate college, you know, to university, and I had a key teacher. If, if, I, if I did have a teacher, it was a, a man named Neil Slater who ended up becoming a superstar in jazz education in America by, um, actually, world, I would say, because he became the, the musical director of, the, of North Texas, U University of North Texas, famous one o'clock band, which the skill of the players was just unbelievable. And um, so, but it's interesting, I, I hadn't spoken to him in like 20 years at the time, and I, and I wrote to him and I said something, or I called him, or, or both, and I said, you know, I learned a lot from you. And he said, but I didn't teach you anything. So we had this kind, and in retrospect, we had this kind of um, guru-disciple relationship in an Eastern philosophical sense. Um, in, in some ways, there's, there are Chinese quotes that, or proverbs that say, like the, uh, the, like, the teacher doesn't teach, but the student learns, that kind of thing. So just being around this person, uh, and maybe being at a, at a point in my own evolution, even though I was very young, I could decipher kind of what he was trying to get across with a, with a few little grunts and groans, and, and he also was um, a fine arranger and a really fine jazz pianist as well. And he was, you know, you, you, when you think of a, a university professor, you wouldn't think of somebody, you would think of somebody that might be a little bit more articulate in a way, but it was just, it'd be like, you know, man, like, like, <laughs> colors, man, colors. And I remember he said that one day, and that was the key, one word, that was the key that unlocked everything for me about orchestration, about, because he put his hands together like, like this, meaning the way you mix the instruments. And he said, you know, he was playing the piano. And he was playing for me. He was uh, reharmonized uh, like some very famous song. It was called "Easy to Remember," and the the the, 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 the harmonies were unbelievable that he was playing. And I'm just sitting there, kind of transfixed, sitting on a little couch in his office. And then he stopped, and that's when he he had these little John Lennon kind of glasses, and he looked over at me, and that's when he said, "Colors, man, colors," you know. And um, that was worth the four years. That was the, the, probably the most important moment in the four years of uh, undergraduate bachelor's degree program. The rest of it I probably could have thrown out the window. And, um, but I have to say, you know, it was interesting to hear that he said, I didn't teach you anything, but yet I learned a lot. And, uh, and so in a way, I really, I don't ha didn't have a, a, a traditional kind of a teacher. I always wanted that. 
I wanted to go to New York and study with, you know, Vincent Persichetti or this one, you know, because they were teaching at Juilliard. Juilliard, none of those places would have even allowed me to set foot in the door. You know what I mean? That, that's how I kind of feel like prejudicial it is from, from the background that I was coming. I'm going, but, but I end up still with the London Symphony and the Royal Philharmonic and having a, a CD that, you know, for the last 25 years has been in regular rotation on classical radio all over the, all over the world. You know, so, um, so yeah, it's interesting. There, there can be a lot of re rejections and a lot of prejudices, you know, like, well, if you're in this style of music, oh, well, that's, you know, this is, go away, go, you know, this kind of, where I embraced all of it. And of course, working in Hollywood, that's really quite necessary because I really was very familiar with Broadway, you know, because I loved Mame and Gypsy and Funny Girl and all of those classics. And I knew the scores, you know, backward and forward. I knew all the songs. I knew all the orchestrations, the arrangements, everything. So when I go to Hollywood, that's why I ended up getting hired because I could do breakdance stuff, you know, and I can do the hip hop thing, but I also can do, you know, Gypsy. And, and I ended up working with, you know, Carol Channing and all these people that, you know, <sighs> It just you have to pinch yourself going I, I don't I don't know how this all happened but what a beautiful moment you know to so it, so it, when you want to work in Hollywood the, the more intimately familiar you are with all the different styles of music that's a really big plus and I think that's what's missing from a lot of people they're 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 like specialized in a, in a little slice of music or over specialized right too narrow the bandwidth of or of receptivity <clears throat> Yeah, but outside of that bandwidth, they can't tune anything in, you know. And uh, so, again, so I found people who, you know, noticed that about me in Hollywood. And uh, I'm trying to think, well, Doc Severinsen was, was a big champ. First, it was the musicians. Def, the studio musicians were number one. They immediately loved the music that I wrote. And they just, when I was really green and didn't know anybody... They're just, don't worry about it. They just get on the phone. They call all these heavyweights and oh my God, I can't believe this. And so, my, you know, my, my gratitude to the, to the session players, they, they were just sensational. And um, one, one particular a trumpet player who I originally met on Woody Herman's band named Nelson Hat. I think I don't even know where I would be right now, you know, if it weren't, wasn't for that one person who just was, a, you know, out there waving the flag for me. And he was a, a, a successful studio musician, but he was the kind of guy who'd just pick up the phone, like fearless, and just, hey, there's this great young composer in town. You know, you gotta hear his stuff, man. You know, And then all of a sudden, all these great players were playing in my band for free early on. And then one of the guys in the band, believe it or not, was the bass player in The Tonight Show. Uh, if you remember the, the old Tonight Show with Johnny Carson, um, you'd see a guy with a, a very Italian looking with a big kind of handlebar mustache playing electric bass, rocking back and forth. That was his name was Joel DeBartolo. And one day he just said, I think Doc would really like your your music. I was like, <laughs> you know, because Doc, since I, I grew up uh, as a trumpet player, Doc was like one of the ultimate heroes. And uh, and he brought he invited me to come over and I went with Nelson and Joel to to the rehearsal of the Tonight Show one afternoon, and Doc came in and we talked and he said, 
well, bring some music sometime. And I, I couldn't believe it because I'm quite shy in a lot of ways. I, I had I brought one of my arrangements. You're very shy with, with me, I can tell. No, I no, I say No, I know I you are. To, I know you are. It took me a while to figure out the right word. I learned to become assertive, not aggressive, but assertive because I had no family. I had to work I had to eat. You know what I mean? And so I would early on I'd pick up the phone and hang it up. Pick up the phone, hang up, you know, before I would dial somebody because I was too shy to call somebody up. So again, some of these wonderful people acted in my behalf early on, and um, that kind of gave me a chance to breathe. So when all these wonderful people that I admired were just going, wow, you're so great, you know, more or less, uh, I'm going, it gave me confidence. And, um, and then it just kind of grew from there. And then I kept gaining champions along the way. Of course, Glenn Rovin, the musical director from New York that I did the, uh, Sammy Davis thing. For 10 or 15 years, we worked solid. Um, and that's where a lot of the, the credits on my CV come from, my work with him. And he brought me into the, um, the Broadway world as well. And uh, then there's a, a man who's still one of my very best friends. His name is Steve Binder. And uh, he was the one responsible for Elvis, resurrecting Elvis's career, the famous Elvis comeback special. Oh, really? Uh, he, he directed the Tammy movie, which is, I think, one of the top 25 music documentaries of all time. And, uh, and his, the list of why, if you think my, my uh, CV is something, you know, Diana Ross in Central Park, blah, blah, I mean, on and on and on. And through Glenn, I ended up working uh, for Steve. And, and when he heard the Awakening CDs some years later, uh, he just became such a champion for me. And uh, in fact, he's there's a new movie about Elvis's manager, Colonel Tom Parker. I think it just came out this month. And somebody in that movie plays Steve Binder. <laughs> I haven't seen it yet, but oh, I'm wow. really looking forward to seeing it. Yeah. I'm looking forward to seeing that movie. That should be historic. Yeah, I mean, that and um, so... You know, I have to pinch myself, even to this day, even after, I was in Hollywood for about 30 years, but whenever I'm around a guy like Steve Binder or, or others of, of that strata, oh man, I, I just, um, I keep quiet. You know, I, I tell the students, they didn't find it hard to believe it. I said, when I was in Hollywood, I hardly said a word. I go, because everybody around me was so unbelievably great. I just kept quiet and just listen, listen, listen. If they asked me for my opinion, I was there and I certainly had my opinions, but I go, I, I didn't speak until I was spoken to, you know, and uh, and that's what I loved about Hollywood, waking up every day, whether I had money or whether I didn't have money, you know, or whether I had money or not. Um, every day I woke up and goes, I can't believe this. You know, the sun is shining and I get to work with all these heroes of mine, you know, and what a, I never what know a when blessing. the phone rings, My God. What, what, what kind of a, what kind of a job there's going to be. And then I have actor friends of mine, et cetera. Yeah. It's also uh, such a blessing because it's different. Everything is different. Every project is different. You get to participate and show up in all these distinctive projects that are creative. And uh, that's like God sent to me. It is. It's it never sense. was never boring. That's for sure. Right. Exactly. Because, uh, again, you you never know what you're called to do. You never know. Like again, at midnight, you get a call. Hey, you, you want to do this thing for Michael Jackson? It's like, huh? You know. So.
want to ask you about your the childhood part of your life. Did you have a knowing what you were going to do or what profession you would be in, like before you were fifteen or sixteen or seventeen oh, years old? Yeah, I, I would say even you know five or six or something. I, Tell I, me about it. Tell us well, about it. Was, it. Oh, as you know, I've been writing, working on my memoirs, and when I'm trying to dig back to the. <laughs> You know the earliest memories of life. They always there's always music, and I guess it's a cultural thing too. I think being Italian, there was always music of some sort playing, and it was it the full range. You know it would be whatever the pop stuff that was on the radio at the time, or then it could be Sammy Davis Jr. and Frank Sinatra, then it could be um, a you know like a classical music. I, most of my classical training I got from watching Bugs Bunny. To be real honest, uh, you know, really? um, I'm not going to give it any. <laughs> I don't know how that happened. That must be. We need a psychiatrist to decode this. <laughs> well, because they used all the classic repertoire in in those cartoons. They they again they arranged them a little. They they ex extracted the essence of a lot of these great compositions, and they used them in these these moments. So that, I think my first introduction to classical music, for the most part, were through Warner Brothers cartoons. And um, and there and it's still amazing. And the 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 way the musicians performed them w was the skill incredible. But at that time, you know, studios, orchestras were on uh, on contract, so that's like an eight-hour job. So you could you could just keep working with them over and over and over, and they just got a salary. It became different after a while, where and then you're paying for a three-hour session every time. And then it became the, a lot more pressure to get things done. Uh, correctly in a shorter period of time but um so i, I always remember music uh going on jazz I, I really really took to jazz you know while i was still in elementary school and then i became i was steeped in that for for years were you in um, los angeles during this time as a child where were you no i grew up in bridgeport connecticut Okay, um, I know so I, it's still I consider it kind of like the new york metropolitan area it's only like an hour away and uh and I think, you know, I'm I'm a hundred percent Italian. I grew up in a Jewish neighborhood. You know, this is an this is a real rich cultural <laughs> <Shalom>. experience. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> Shalom. Yeah, you know, I remember. <laughs> uh, I, I vaguely remember, but I was reminded by the neighbors that you know, I, when I was like five or something, I'd go over to the to the neighbor, and you know, I call her grandma. You know, her and and she was Jewish, and she had that very Jewish, the old like from old country kind of accent and and they gave me a yarmulke and I'm wearing it on my head and I and I'd oh say my hi God. my name is Joe <laughs> Curielli and I'm Catholic <laughs> and they laughed so I mean yeah there were I was surrounded by that culture in a lot of ways like I, I could say I feel more Jewish than I do Italian because I grew up in that that environment um and then I then I go on to Hollywood and that it's a dominant culture in Hollywood yes. as well. Yes, it is. So it's just so my sense of humor, everything is kind of Jewish. So it's like when I. But the problem was, is every time I get left Los Angeles, nobody understood my sense of humor. You know, so I um, do understand. You know, <laughs> I do understand. I, I lived you know, in Berlin, and I was I was saying in a group one time that. I felt verklempt. Unfortunately, the Yiddish <laughs> translation of verklempt and the German translation was very different. They all looked at me and broke up laughing. I thought, what's so funny? I said, 
doesn't it mean this? And they said, no, it means I'm sexually frustrated. Let's get it on or something like that. I, I guess was like, I had no idea. Different than Mike Myers' no portrayer of Linda <laughs> Richmond. I'm feeling a little bit for Jeez. I thought it just meant wow. choked up, you know, right? I mean. For klempt means, I mean, the Yiddish translation is kind of <laughs> disoriented, kind of out of sorts. Like oh. for klempt, it's a chaotic um you know, you're really out of sorts. But apparently yeah. there was a sexual translation in Berlin. I had no idea. Well, that's Very something new to me because I, I love Yiddish. Of course, y Yiddish is the, the pretty much the sub-language in Hollywood in yes. the business. You know, all the, all the little <laughs> shlemiel, shlemazel, you know, schlock, uh -huh. uh, on and on. So, um, again, I grew up with those since I was little. Um, so I, that was part of my language. But I, at one point I, I said, boy, I really would love to really learn Yiddish because it's one of the most expressive, the sounds <laughs> The schmuck is a putz. What do you want to know about it? <laughs> exactly. It fit the meaning, you know. Even if you don't understand it, you know what it means, you know. So, yeah. it's So, again, I've, I've had such a rich... Um, culturally, I've had a really rich life from, from the get-go, you know. So even when I grew up, I actually found the house where I, I wasn't born in the house, but you know, when I, that's where I went after I was born. And that whole area was uh, also Puerto Rican. You know, Italians, Puerto Ricans, Polish, Jews, everybody. So every, nobody really ever seems to be a stranger to me, you know, so, um, and, and, it all added up. You get a little music from this. You get a little music from this. You get language from this. You get expression from this. It's a, it was great. Wow. What about film score and you? Any any talk to me about film score projects. Anything you've wanted to do or applied to do or did do that you'd like to talk well, about? Believe it or not, when I went to Hollywood, I really loved television, and to this day, I, I consider myself a. Um, uh, what, what's the word? I mean, about, I don't like to use the word expert because as you can see in the book that I wrote, it says somebody who knows more and more about less and less. But <laughs> um, but to be very knowledgeable about the television history uh, because I grew up with it. I'm a, I'm a child of pop culture, American pop culture. I was glued to the television since I was little. Fortunately, when I grew up, the television was amazing and rich. It was amazing, wasn't and it? Not, oh not only God. the shows themselves and the acting. The music. And, and the incredible character actors, um, but the music. The composers that were writing music for television. Phenomenal. Were, Phenomenal. Just incredible. And a thrill for me when I went to Hollywood is, you know, I, I ended up befriending some of them and not only befriending them, but like one of my favorites, Earl Hagen, who wrote Andy Griffith and Dick Van Dyke and that girl and Gomer Pyle and on and on. Uh, oh my God, that girl. That this. How about Sally Fields, a flying nun? Anything with the flying nun? <laughs> oh, Dave Grusin, I think might have yeah. been the, the flying nun. So I mean, and he went one. on to be, of course, huge. Um, you know, but I got to be, do a big tribute at the Hollywood Bowl. Uh, Steve Binder, I, I worked on the shows. Uh, the the TV Academy, which does the Emmys, was putting on a big event at the Hollywood Bowl, uh, the celebration of television music. I'm going, this is home for me, man. So Steve Binder basically hired me and just said, go, do what you want. You know? And so he asked me, who, who should we uh, honor? And I said, oh, it has to be Earl Hagen. And he's like the granddaddy of, of this stuff. And, 
and and I still hadn't met him. I met I I wanted to meet him from the, like early on when I first got to Hollywood and never could connect. When I almost connected, he had like quadruple bypass heart surgery. This kind of went on. So it's interesting that I met him later in my career in Hollywood and driving out to Palm Springs and spent 11 hours with him. And this wow. was like a dream come true for me, you know. And I knew his mu I knew his music backward and forward. I think he couldn't believe how much I knew about his music. And um, he was a very matter-of-fact guy on the surface. And um, I remember the only thing that I thought was going to be difficult, I, I did a medley of about 10 of his theme songs. But the hardest one of all, believe it or not, was Andy Griffith, the whistling theme. I'm going... I remember after 11 hours of, of sitting with him, watching I Spy, watching, you know, we're talking about what he did here because he was, uh, he was, uh, he got an Emmy Award for one of the I Spy episodes. I stood at his door getting ready to leave and I said, but you know, I don't really know what to do with Andy Griffith. And he goes, don't worry, you'll figure it out. And he closed the door. Oh, wow. So, um, but at the show, he, you know, again, if this is like, I, if I die, I, it doesn't matter at, at this point. You know, when the Hollywood 100-piece orchestra honoring her Earl Hagen with 5,000 people there, it was his birthday that night. Uh, Robert Culp, they got Robert Culp from I Spy to walk him out um, because he did the music of I Spy as well. And um, when it was all over, I went to find him in the audience and he kissed me on the cheek and he, and he said, I love you. And, and he said, this is the best night of my life. And I'm going... All those years as a little kid, seeing seeing his name, Earl Hagen, fly by in the credits, I'm going, how could I have ever known that I'd have this moment? But that's Hollywood. For me, my experience in Hollywood, the big dream machine. I it worked is. with people who anything you thought or you can, can dream happen. up, no problem. If you get, again, these key people who believe in you, are going, okay, go with it. And... A few weeks later, a million. I love that, and I miss that about Los Angeles. I must tell you. Well, it's something I, I that space that. is remarkable. Yeah. That general consciousness, like every. I love going back to L.A. because as soon as I get there, I'm I'm re-energized. I feel like I'm in my element because it's something something greater going on there. There's this. Uh, Absolutely, there's a potentiation in the space. Period. Everything Correct. is potential. It, you can potentiate anything at any time. That's the mentality. That's the consciousness. It's not true everywhere else. No, all. it isn't. I feel some. For the most part, every time I step out of there, it's. I feel quite lost. Um, yeah, it's like a drop, a major drop of vibration. Yeah, and there's like nobody gets me. You know, I, I kind of feel, or very few people get me quote unquote you know what I mean and it's uh, uh, they don't know your value where I'm going I'm working with these people that are living legends and, and I, no matter what <laughs> I do nothing is wrong everything that I do it seems like it's great it's great it's great you're great blah 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 and you walk out and you go to podunk somebody, someplace and like where I am at the moment and the students are just like so disrespectful I'm going no thanks no thanks you know I know, I know what I'm glad the biggest chunk of my life you know, was there at that particular time because it was the tail end of a Hollywood that kind of may not exist at, at present. Um, and I got on the tail end of where a lot of my heroes were still, they were slowly phasing out, but they were still there, you know. So I got to hang with them and learn from them and talk to them. And, oh, it's, to this day, I still have to pinch, I still feel like a five-year-old. Like, I can't believe... <laughs> 
I got to do this, you know what I mean? Unbelievable. It's kind of like a magic carpet ride you've had. It, it really is, like I said, it's the big dream machine. Anything that you think, you, you can imagine, you can materialize somehow. You know, again, we don't, you, the way you started out talking is just like, I don't do anything alone. Success is a group effort. But I was with like my own kind, you know, and uh, kind of Your like own a culture. I, I mean, I, I say this with affection in a way, but a freak. You know what I mean? I was in a community of <laughs> everybody's a freak. So they embrace it. You know, if I dyed my hair blonde one day, they're going, oh, that's great. I wear a pink jumpsuit. Oh, fantastic. You know, I do, you know, no matter what I do, everybody was like really positive. You know, oh, man, you're going to do great. You know, blah, blah, blah. You know, where you go at other places and it's just you're getting like negative signals all the time. Not, I'm sure that's there are true. pockets that's of true. places. But I, I've met a, a handful of people here and there in other places, but it's few and far between. I don't like cliches but th that'll get to the point i i actually called it a culture of possibility because when i lived in europe and i lived in several countries in europe one of the key things i noticed having grown up in los angeles is exactly what you're talking about which is all this can be anything can be potentiated at any second and when you grow up and you are inculcated with that uh, consciousness and then you go outside and most things are discouraged that are creative. There yes. is a culture of discouragement that has a hold in many countries around the world. I think it's because the, the left brain runs, you know, uh, runs a lot of cultures, okay, right. about what can and can't happen and what your opportunity really is and isn't. It was so profound that when I returned from Europe, having lived in Berlin, Germany, and Torveja, Spain, and Glastonbury, England, and traveled around Europe, I did my first podcast and talked about that distinctiveness. It was profound. It, it sure was is. profound. And it's exactly what you're talking about. You, you grew up in it, you breathe it, it's your oxygen, and then you go outside and it is as if there's no oxygen for the creative spirit. That's true. It's... You know, and I'm not being critical. And the spirit just, of possibility. And the spirit of possibility. Yeah. I, I like that word where it's, you know, there are all possi all possibilities kind of exist in that environment. It's a very, at least when I was there, it was um, still a place where anything was possible if you have the right people along with you to, to make, make it happen. And uh, everything was love, man. I, I, I really felt... So much love from everybody, from the musicians, from the directors, from the producers, from the recording engineers, you know, the actors and actresses. I mean, I still have friends who are famous actors and actresses, and they're so, so loving to me, you know, uh, to this day. And um, it's kind of, I get a, a real, in a way, a spiritual jolt. And um, I'm going to be in... Uh, Los Angeles um, next week, actually, and I'm 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 really looking forward. I haven't been there in a while, and I'm really looking forward to just soaking it all up, you know, and um, yeah. The um, I want to talk to you a little bit about um, some of the groups that you've really liked, aside from the people you worked with. I know you listened to the piece we did uh, with Tommy James and the Shondells, and. 
I wanted to ask you when you listen to that, did you did you know about the mob's relationship in the music business? Well, not when I was before, a kid. Of before course. Tommy James talked about it. Um, not before I read his book, uh, "Me and the Mob." Me, and the music, uh, me yeah, me and the Mob. Which is and the music. An, an incredible book. I recommend everybody read it. Um, yeah. Uh, I'm so happy he wrote it because. It was just so excellent. It was riotous. I loved it. It was chock full of, it, it was a great, grand experience to read his book. But, you know, in university, the, you know, the past 10 years or so or more, I, I've been teaching about the music industry. And, of course, I have a lot of anecdotal information. And, um, you know, it, it, students are completely shocked because the music business isn't what they, they kind of think it is. You know, it's, uh, it's always been kind of underworld run for, for to to a large degree again anytime i think there's really big money there's lots of sharks you know and uh that kind of thing again for the most part i don't have any really hollywood hollywood horror stories or anything but i i made sure that i you know kept myself distant from the potential of a lot of that stuff but yeah his story was just shocking but 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 it's probably one of many 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 like his experience, but he's very articulate. That's that's the isn't he? Nice he thing. really is. Yeah, I want to do a plug a... for that for that interview for those of you listening oh, to yeah. Joseph. Uh, Tommy James and I did an interview before I went to live in Europe, and I really want to invite you to listen to it. It's it, it, it's very instructive, very funny, also about his experience, me, the mob, and the music. What happened to him as a younger musician? Fascinating. Yeah, it's definitely worth listening to, and it goes by in two seconds because it's so interesting. And uh, but um, different eras, you know. I, of course, I, early on in my life, I was very inspired by by jazz. You know, Maynard Ferguson, Count Basie, Thad Jones, Mel Lewis. Uh, you know, the real core groups. But but there were so many that were inspiring to me. And, uh, of course, even watching The Tonight Show, you know, hearing that Tonight Show band, so it was uh, in incredible for me that I got to write for them for 11 years um, until the very last show. And, and one of the songs that I wrote, the, one of the arrangement or compositions I wrote for them, they ended up making it the closing theme of The Tonight Show for, for wow. quite a few years. It's called Sick of the Blues. And... Um, but you know, I think early on people like, believe it or not, Burt Backrack. Burt Backrack. Love Burt Backrack. Oh my God! Huge influence on me. Um, his melodies are a little bit unconventional, uh, especially for singers. It took a really great singer like Dionne Warwick to be able Dionne to pull Warwick. off some of those melodies because they were very. A lot of times they're more than an octave. They they have really unusual intervals and everything. But I loved the way he thought. I lo he orchestrated a lot of his own music and I loved his approach the simplicity it was all kind of heart to me and uh and of course the songs that he wrote with Hal David oh um, my god he was yeah. he also had a great charisma about him oh Bert well Backrack. yeah there's no oh no god. doubt about no doubt right? about that as well <laughs> so he he was I mean all the way around was uh a huge um, inspiration to me and guys like Chuck Mangione there's you know there might be people who don't you know they don't know the feel so good that he did but Chuck Mangione he did things for orchestra believe it or not at Eastman School of Music in, in early in his career and the way he thought uh, the way he approached music 
really had a huge influence on me. And of course, Gino Vanelli. And I don't want to say just Gino. Oh, I love Gino Vanelli. But it's really I Gino and Joe. Stop. You know, it's his brother as well who <laughs> really doesn't get the the credit that he deserves. Of course, he he came to London to to assist me when I did the um, Gates of Gold Awakening CD Awakening. because uh, he. He, he was the only person I personally knew who worked with the Royal Philharmonic before the, the Pauper in Paradise album was done. And I think that was 1977. I didn't know so, that. That's interesting. Yeah, and, and I got to... Pauper in Paradise was done in... Wow. I'm sorry. And um, so I, I got to work with them because uh, the drummer of Tower of Power, which again is another one of the groups oh that God. had a huge effect on me, David oh, Garibaldi, the, to Tower uh, the, drummer, Power. the drummer of Tower <laughs> of Power, introduced me to to Gino. Um, and then, I mean, to this day, Joe especially, I mean, he's like family. Ross, too. I mean, I, 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 Gino, we got along great as well. Um, but I'm closer yeah, to talk Joe. Talk about a sexy voice, Gino Vanelli. Well, again, oh those... God. They had... Whew, they come from a similar background like myself. And... They have that mixture of jazz, the richness of the jazz harmonies, and the beautiful, I think the Italian thing, you know, the beautiful, strong melodies, and all of that. So I really can identify with them. But uh, it, was a, it was a famous musician on Woody Herman's band named Bruce Johnston that uh, was the one who turned me on to him because he, he, I wanted a break. I was only about 21 years old at the time. I wanted to get something recorded. And he was on Woody Herman's band. And he said, well, why don't you do an arrangement? Woody wants to do an arrangement, uh, wants to do something to f folk, you know, feature me. So he turned me on to this Gino's album called Gist of the Gemini. I never heard of him, except I think I saw them in Downbeat Magazine, there was a profile or something. And when I listened to it, it was for me, and, and I thought I was pretty well developed, but this was like, I mean, this was like another planet, you know, the, the music. And uh, when I heard that, it was right after that, I went to North University of North Texas to start a master's program in the summer of 77. And I basically spent the whole summer sem semester listening to every possible record of Gino Vanelli that I could get. You know, and I learned a lot from them. I think my um, my striving for perfection, uh, in and never letting never letting anything go until it's absolutely. I I have to say, perhaps without knowing the Vanellis, uh, the Awakening CD might not quite be what it turned out to be, because they became the high benchmark for good taste. Excellence in in sound. Um, Who produced Gino in, Vanelli? Because whoever produced Gino Vanelli, well, they did brother? themselves. Okay, they did a the great three job. brothers, Gino, Joe, and Ross, and they're all wonderfully talented. Um, they produced it themselves, and they, I again because I did work on one of their albums called Inconsolable Man. I worked on the single Inconsolable Man, and you know they'll take six months to work on one cut. one You know, I, I, I was in Hollywood. I was going from job to job to job to job. I couldn't spend six months on, on I, I'd go broke, you know what I mean? But I always um, stayed in contact with them. And then I started recording at their, they had their own studios. They had their own studio. They could really take the time to refine every little detail. And it shows, you listen to their records, there's hardly anybody that has records that sonically are, are 
masterpieces like that. But it's interesting that that's what the classical DJ said when, when they heard Awakening. They said, not only did they love the music, they said sonically it was absolutely beautiful. Joe Vanelli has Joe Vanelli has a lot to do with that because he mixed them. He edited them and he mixed those albums. And, you know, lots and lots and lots of hours into the, you know, into the wee hours of the morning, refining. But they kind of created a monster because then I became kind of worse than them. You know, and I felt like, you know, oh God, Joe's not, he's not going to talk to me anymore because I'm obsessing about all these little tiny details. But uh, in, in the book, Thoughts and Observations, the first, the first quote is, the little things are the big things. So I learned a lot from them. Besides enjoying their music, uh, about you never, you never compromise on quality, ever. You know, so um, so those are some some early ones. I'm, basically, everything that I've ever heard that I liked or disliked has had an influence on me. What I don't, what I'd like to do, and what I don't want to do. But Burt Backrag. Chuck Mangione, uh, Gino Vanelli, Tower of Power, on and on yeah, and you, on. What did the, you do with Tower of Power? I'm dying to know. Well, the first thing, and again, I was I was very fortunate because um, I hooked up with David Garibaldi. Because David left, he's like the really super famous drummer from Tower of Power, original member. He had come to Los Angeles. He quit the band uh, in the 80s, and he came to Los Angeles, and somebody told me that he was around, and I'm going, ugh. And I don't think many people were hiring him. So I started hiring him immediately, you know. Um, and I, we got along really well, and I was just, you know, pinching myself all the time. And This is David Garibaldi, I can't believe this, you know. And, and then he started recommending me to people. He, and, and when I signed with Columbia Pictures, he introduced me to the lead singer of Tower Power at that time. His name was Ellis Hall. Was that Lenny Williams, right? No, this Lenny is Williams or Lenny, Lenny Williams. White? Oh, uh, no, okay. Lenny Williams. Lenny White was a drummer. Um, yeah, Lenny Williams. So was, I mean, whew, he what introduced a voice. me to Ellis Hall, and we wrote a song together, and with Pamela Phillips, who's a great writer, and she and it it ended up on their album in 1985. So in, the, in 1985, I got to work with Tower Power, Gino Vanelli, and there was somebody else. Every time I picked up the phone, I couldn't believe it. I'd have to like hold the phone and just That's go. It's like I, a musical I, orgasm. I mean, seriously. Oh, it right? was talk I mean, about I like, mean, how many can you have in one uh, year? It was a, seriously. It was, it was and yeah, it was just unbelievable. And the, but this was this was like a, a normal time, a normal day for me in Los Angeles. But I still, it, I never took it for granted. I was still like a little kid in the candy store, going, "Oh, I, I don't believe this. I don't believe this." You know. And so then also when I did the theme to the New Monkeys, there was a TV show called The New Monkeys. Um, I, I asked the producers, I said, I'd like to hire the Tower Power horn section to play on this. And so fortunately, they, they gave me the budget, and I contacted them. They flew down to, to L.A. We went to Hollywood, and, uh, and, oh, wow. and they were the horn section on it. And I was just like, wow. And then I've stayed Ladies in contact Ladies and gentlemen, with- that's spectacular. That's spectacular. For those of you who don't know Tower Power, that is some... Yeah, that, again, this is like that... High, high level Woo. of excellence. You know what I mean, and um, and then I stayed in contact with them wow. over the years, and then even more so now in a way because over the past five or six years, because Joe Vanelli has produced their last several albums, so they're always oh, in the really? studio, oh and God. we're kind of juggling time. You know, if I was happened to be in L.A. and I only was going to be there a week, and I needed to record, 
he'd have to call the guys in tower and say, hey, Joe Curiel, he needs, uh, he needs some time. Can you, would you switch some time? And then I'd go and I'd see the guys and everything. And they're, they're, they're just, just wonderful, wonderful musicians, you know, and yeah, that, their, their music, their everything musically. I have, I, have, I have another question about two more bands. Have you ever wanted to meet or have met Chicago? The band Chicago, oh, Bobby Lamb. They actually, they actually, I lived in Westlake Village, and uh, a lot of the Chicago guys lived in Westlake Village um, at one time. And yeah, of course, I, I'd want to meet everybody. You know what I mean? Um, or the Young Rascals. Have you met Felix Cavallari? Oh, well, yeah. I mean, I, I would love to have a chat with Felix uh, Cavalieri and- uh, I'm gonna invite him on. If I invite him on, will you come on so you can ask him some questions? Oh, you bet. From the inside? <laughs> Would I you do that? I was gonna encourage you to, I know you were talking about him recently. I was gonna say, why don't you contact Felix? I'm gonna contact Felix and invite him on. Yeah, because he's- He's, he's such a sweetheart. He's such a, 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 an old soul. And just an incredible Beautiful musician. Beautiful voice, too. Yeah. And, and, and one of those voices. And again, it's music that, it's interesting that he said it in an interview recently that I saw, but I already felt that that's the sound of New York in 1966 and 67. You know, just like Tommy James, those records were made in New York and they, they just reek of New York in the best ways totally. and they're just saturated with it every nuance every session player and those little moments you know where he's just his voice would just crack a little bit out of note I'm going that'll never happen again it was a moment and I remember it from when it originally I heard it until to this very day and it's like they that was the soundtrack of of my young life you know and there's so many more you know what I mean it's just but those they they made a great contribution to cult to our culture, I think to humanity because they, everything they were writing was very positive, it was very loving. That's you true, know, which uh, which was great. And of course, with Tommy James, the ultimate for me was is Crystal Blue Persuasion. Oh, it's me funny too. that uh, <laughs> my friend here, Matt, that you met, uh, is much younger, and he said that. Unfortunately, his first introduction to Crystal Blue Persuasion was on an episode of Breaking Bad, and they used it while they were manufacturing crystal meth. I'm going, that is absolutely the Not opposite. Not what it's about at all, yeah. yeah. You know, it's actually about God. It's about, it's about inspired by the Book of Revelations, from what I remember he said. I'm going, yeah. so it's, uh, yeah, it's... Um, just, it's perfect. Like those records that the Rascals did, the records that Tommy James did, in my, my estimation as a producer, as a musician, they're absolute perfection. They cannot be improved upon. They were a moment in time, just like I, we were talking about me channeling that music. That, that, I'm sure that, that happened to them as well. You know, exactly the same. That it's a moment in time, they showed up and they channeled it. And I wish I, I wish I could see what what it was like in the recording session of Good Lovin' or. Um, oh my or, God! I would have done anything to be there. <laughs> you know, or Blood, Sweat, and Tears. Obviously, yes. Blood, Sweat, and oh. Tears. Between Blood, Sweat, and Tears, I think, and Chicago, because they were neck and neck at the time. Um, I think Blood, Sweat, and Tears had more of an influence on me. Uh, it was a New York band. Um, they were not only skilled in jazz and rock. But they also, a lot of them were going to Juilliard. They had classical chops as well. I mean, a yeah, lot and you of know, them, Bobby Lamb from Chicago went to Juilliard too. 
I didn't know that. But he, I know he's from Brooklyn, right? He grew up in Brooklyn. Yeah, I That's think where so. I think Saturday in the Park came and uh, does anybody know what time it is and all that stuff that he wrote? Um, I, I love the guys from... Yeah, I mean, I I, love, I grew up, on, again, more of the soundtrack of my life that you, when you add all these, you put them into the pot, all of that somewhere is in Gates of Gold. It's in Awakening. It's in Wind River. It's all, you know, even in Adelina de Meyer, there's a moment in Adelina de Meyer where I was, I was wanted to make it feel like the time turned around, that it wasn't, you know, like regular and I'm, I was going I wonder what David Garibaldi and Tower of Power would do nobody would ever listen to the, thinking that I was influenced by Tower of Power and their symphonic piece I mean, but to me music is music you like it or you don't like it it's music I don't I don't really don't like all these um compartmentalizing it's this music and it's this music even electronic music when I did the electronic albums and you're putting it up on CD Baby or something and they want to know what's the genre and two subgenres sub and there's like this big list. I'm going, it's music, man. You know, it has know. elements like of jazz. That happens in publishing, by the way, too. What genre is it? What if it's, it's in a genre that's not mentioned? Well, that's, well, I think that's, that's where I've had a hard time at certain periods of my life because a lot of the music that I do is a mixture of a lot of different things. So when they used to have record stores, a guy like me would confuse them because where are we going to put you? In? Are you going to put you in the jazz section? Are you going to go into the new age section? Are you going to go into the classical section? Obviously, when I did the symphonic work, that's, that's a done deal. It's going to go in the classical section. But still, um, real hardcore academic kind of classical people might think, you know, it's classical light or something or... You know, because it has great melodies. You know, oh, the, don't we don't want melodies? This is as John Marcheri, um, who was the uh, conductor of the Hollywood Bowl Orchestra and La Scala and other places. But uh, a documentary that I have that he, he said, and he put it perfectly. He said, at the turn of the century, in music, melody had became had become abhorrent. So I've taken, the public loves the music, the symphonic music, the academics will knock it because it's, you know, as soon as they hear a beautiful melody, oh, it's, this is Hollywood garbage. It has nothing to do with it. You know, it has nothing. So, um, you know, a lot of these people that put it down are going, well, has your music been in regular rotation on classical radio for the last 25 years? I go, I didn't pay anybody off. I didn't have a marketing person. I didn't have a manager. I go, this is all... Like yourself, you pull off the road. Fortunately, the disc jockeys gave it a chance. You know, once they played it, today it they don't even announce music. Today they don't. Very rarely do they announce music. It's it's it's. A well, see, I want to know that. I did this since childhood. That's how I knew all. I got to know all the players that I would get to know in Hollywood and New York later on. Is that I I buy an album, look who 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 played, who's in trumpet section, who's in the violin section, who who mixed it. You know, I mean, th this is really important to me you know like uh, I want to know which orchestra it is I want to know where it was recorded um, it makes a difference you know everything I went makes to a hundreds difference. of everything makes a difference I went to hundreds of concerts and I studied musicians and music and their presence and their shakti watching them on stage as a young person very very young person I was steeped in it I wasn't a musician I've never been a musician but I've had such a pull to music, all kinds of music in every area, international, national. And um, I think it's one of the greatest joys of life. 
it's pretty it can be it can be used for negative as well but i think in sure. its finest form it's it's about as divine as it gets i mean a sound um yeah, it's it's something else. I mean, I'm still I still feel like a baby, you know, like I, I like I don't really know much about anything. The more that I know, the more that I feel I don't know anything. But I'm hungry to learn. And I, I, I love listening to other people's experiences and especially people who are positive souls, you know, that uh, not putting everybody else down or, or anything like that, just like giving me their their insights and um, and again I, I have a quote in the book as well you know I learn more now I learn more about music by not listening to music I'm kind of digesting a lifetime I don't need a radio to play the radio in my brain is playing all the time you know what I mean just <laughs> I can't get it to stop you know? I was gonna say being in your brain could be very very busy in there <laughs> very busy there's a nice playlist okay I <laughs> bet there is I'll bet there is is there anything else you'd like to share with the public? I mean, you're you're moving out of the country, correct, to mm. the Philippines, and yes. uh, would you like to share anything about that, or are you going to continue to arrange, conduct, and compose music? Are you going to write? What What are you up to now? You're going to move shortly. Well, I honestly don't feel the desire or the need to write one more note. I mean, if, if, I, if it changes in the future, that's fine, but um, there, there have been some personal events in my life that just made me wanna question a lot of things about this life. And um, I just didn't, I, I lost the, the feeling for it. To, to write anymore music. But I, I'm fine with it because I feel that hopefully I left something greater than myself for the greater good. I don't have to write 10 more Gates of Goals. If I was fortunate enough to write one, um, then mission accomplished in my, in my life, I feel, you know. And, um, but I, I have, I still have a lot of, creativity in, in me and uh, how that, you know, I write poetry. I, um, I'm working on memoirs. I'm finishing up a book on my life and work in India. Um, I have thoughts. Your philanthropic work, right? Your philanthropic right. work. Mm -hmm. Yes. And, um, and just write my thoughts um, and spend as much time as possible with my, my beautiful canine family in the Philippines that I learned more from than anyone in this life and uh, about the things that really matter. And, um, and I, I don't like the way animals are treated. And I think dogs are just the most incredible beings I, I have ever experienced in my life. And this came to me later in life in the Philippines, uh, especially with my, my best friend, Mandy. And um, <laughs> so, I, I've done a lot of humanitarian work, but at this point, the only interest I have in helping in that way is to uh, rescue dogs, um, you know, pre prevent people from abusing them and hurting, hurting them. That, that's very high on the priority list for me. It's astounding how much dogs are abused. I can't, we, we could do hours They're so and hours sensitive on it. so, and so, so intuitive 
and so loving. I mean, humans don't, from my, my opinion. They don't deserve you know, dogs. I, I'll don't include deserve myself, them. you know. I mean, I, I, mm -hmm. I can't, I can't come, I don't come anywhere near what, what for example, Mandy was like. I, not, not even close. You know, and I have to I have to admit that as as much as you know I, <laughs> you know I I've done to to try to help other people and all that other stuff and the music and everything like that. I feel this big. I feel I'm I was her servant, and I still have others, and um, I'm my most cherished desire is to to continue to serve them and to honor them. That's what I. That's what makes me. That's beautiful. That's smile. beautiful. <laughs> Are you? Is that going to be a, a port, a part of the Joseph Corelli Foundation? I closed that in 2014. Okay. So um, whatever I do, uh, again, I didn't want to deal with all the the business paperwork stuff. and the administration yeah, and just, the politics. Yeah, it kind of makes everything kind of It's direct. And, it's direct. You know, You're going direct to be of support. Yeah, it's just um, I, I don't do it because I'm going to get a. A tax deduction. You know, I'm doing it because it needs to be done, and I can't think of anything more noble for myself at this time in my life than uh, to use whatever resources I have to bring a lot of happiness and love and, and joy to them. You know, they're sentient beings. Oh, big time, big time, boy! Yeah. And they're they're my bit, probably the best gurus I've ever had. Um, but you have to be. Like I said, I didn't get it until later in life, probably until when I first got them in 2012. Then, then it cha they changed my life, you know. I rescued a, uh, I rescued a dog named Danny. It was a girl, but the owner had named her Danny with a Y. I changed it, and, and there's a long story. It'll be out in a book next year. And um, she totally changed my life. I traveled with her across America. I had her taken care of while I was in Europe. I mean, the commitment I had to this this being was not of this world. Well, I understand. And I sacrificed everything to make sure she was taken care of. And, and it, it was so profound. And shortly after COVID was in play, I lost her. And it was the most devastating devastating experience and still to this day i'm not, not well it, it might have happened around the same time that i lost mandy and it broke me um nothing has ever broken my spirit like like that um i get it and that's when i learned that she passed and i knew that uh it was because of negligence on the part of these horrible people that call themselves veterinarians i i they're basically drug dealers. They're not. They're not healers. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah. at that moment, I said, "I'll never write a note of music again." So now you opened up the can of words to, worms to tell you that that's the reason why I refuse to write another note of music. And uh, um, and I'm fine with it. I'm fine with it. Um, but yeah, I, you're you're preaching to the choir when it comes to that. So it's interesting to hear your experience and you know feel for your loss because um, I have cried every day since, you know. Um. And it's what's so interesting is so many people, uh, of course, love dogs, but so many people don't mistreat them and treat them horribly. 
and don't I remember people saying to me it's a dog just find another home I said excuse me this is a family member don't talk to me like that don't talk to me like that I go because once you have that connection once you have that connection and I remember the first day when I did this this rescue I had to, I was living in an apartment at the time doing three shows a week and I was not allowed it was a big huge white husky shepherd so uh, somebody that was at a pet cow who knew what happened helped me find a place to her for Danny to be temporarily until I could relocate and I would walk her three four or five times a day for like 15 minutes at a pop and so we had a bond well when I took her to this location which was great for her the crying that went on at the front door almost broke me howling crying at the front door when I had to leave her there I mean if anybody I, I have it I recorded it if anybody dare says they don't feel anything that they're not sentient or they don't have a there's soul nothing there they don't have a soul you can hear this it's just unbelievable it's so profound it's so I profound understand. I understand and well, uh, maybe so maybe you'll have something going and we'll we'll raise some money to take care of the animals Sure, I have I a like thing it. like that for also elephants. I have a thing for the elephants and the dolphins. I, the, I feel the dogs that them are as well. so mistreated. I I can't even. They're they're like so, the physical embodiment of love. I mean, like exactly pure love, through. pure love, pure love, pure love, and yeah. devotion and loyalty. I mean, I really, I feel so insignificant when I a b myself to Mandy or to my <laughs> others. I just go. I have a long way to go. It's so sweet to hear. It's so sweet to hear you talk about that, you know, because in a way, you know, we've talked about your kind of partial journey through, through the industry, through your life, through your profession, through your calling, the nuances of it, but also this other side of you, which is just as real and vital and pulsating and going that moves through you and I um, I am wishing you the best happiness and success as you journey uh, to the other part of the world I look forward to hearing from you again and hearing how you're doing and how it's going you know we the world that uh, is now changed so much I'm I'm wishing you the best success over there in terms of setting up your new life and I'm partnered with you uh, definitely on the canine and animal <laughs> support, big time. Thank you. Thank you. And uh, I'd like to tell the audience where they can buy your music and hear your music. Would you share with them what to do? Sure. Well, um, it's on the Awakening CD. Uh, oh, there's four CDs, I think, at least on, on Amazon, Awakening, The Music of Life, uh, In Autumn, and uh, Dinky Town. Um, I have two new. Oh, I have two books out already. They've been out since 2006: the Spirit of Creativity and the Wisdom of Creativity. And two new books out. One dedicated to Mandy, which is a book of <laughs> of poetry um, inspired by a Japanese haiku, and it's called "Walking with Mandy." And uh, and another one called "Thoughts and Observations: A Commentary on Life" that I've kind of extracted from the last 20 years of letters and <laughs> essays and uh, um, just f f 
writing things down as I experienced something, and uh, it just all came together. They're not available yet, but hopefully soon. Um, I can't thank you enough. God well, bless you, you. It's rainmaking really time, it. Joseph. It's rainmaking right. time. <laughs> Thanks. Be well. Be well, my See dear you. brother. Thanks. See you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.